0: Amos chapter 4, verses 1-3. through three. Now, I don't know if this sermon's any good or not, but I'm really proud of the sermon title. I worked hard on that one. Probably the best work of my life. Uh, and you'll understand why such a bizarre title when we get into the passage if you don't know Amos 4. Here it comes. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness that, Behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into harmon, declares the Lord. So what is Amos doing? He is talking to the wealthy women of Israel. How do I know they're wealthy women? Because the word that he uses for husbands in Hebrew is the same word as the word for lords. So these are noblemen, these are the high class, the uppity upper class of Israel. Remember, there were two nations back then. There were two parts of God's people. Down south, you had the nation of Judah. And that was centered around the temple in Jerusalem. And then in the north, you had the nation of Israel that had broken off from the tribe of Judah. And that was a bigger nation. It was more prosperous. They had their capital in Samaria. They had two temples, one in Bethel and one in Dan. And these were not authorized by God. They had more money. They had more power. And here's Amos, not a preacher by trade, just a blue-collar guy, a farmer, a fig picker, a shepherd. And he, he feels compelled by the Lord to go up north, it's not his territory, and to speak to people who won't respect him and to give them a message. Because you see, Israel, although they were booming right now, prosperity-wise, economically, militarily, politically, they had about 40 years, almost exactly 40 years from the day Amos finishes preaching until the day the Assyrian army swoops down from the north and destroys everything and wrecks everything, and carries away those who survive into into captivity. And Amos is God's Hail Mary pass. It's, it's like, this is your last shot. If you don't catch this one and run with it, it's all over for you. And Amos comes, and he confronts the wealthy women of Israel, and he calls them cows. He calls them specifically cows of Bashan. Bashan was what they call the Golan Heights today. Most fertile area then and now in the whole Middle East or in, in Israel at least. And so the cows that grazed there were fatter than others. And he's looking at these, these stylish, snooty women. And he's saying, you think you're the queens of the barnyard, but you're actually the fattest things in the slaughterhouse. You're about to be brisket and you better repent. This is what Amos is saying. This, y'all, this is satire. This is better satire than you'll see on the Daily Show or SNL. This is him taking people who thought highly of themselves and bringing them low because that's what they needed to hear. And when he says you're going to be led away with hooks, he was not exaggerating. Because we, we found uh, artwork that's left over from the Assyrian Empire, which, by the way, is rare because the Assyrians weren't artistic people. You know what the Assyrians were good at? killing other people. That's what they did. They just consumed other nations. And so when they made art, it was bloody art. It was art about destruction. And in Assyrian art, you see at the end of a battle, what do you see? You see the captives being led away with hooks through their noses and their lower lips, which is an effective way to make somebody go where you want them to go, I would think. And Amos is saying, this is what's going to happen to you. This is literally what you're going to experience if you're lucky enough to survive the oncoming holocaust. And I want you to know that when he calls them cows, he's not talking about their weight. He's not talking about their appearance. God doesn't care about any of that stuff. He's not even condemning their, the fact that they have money as such. I mean, we see people in the scriptures who had wealth for their time and still served the Lord faithfully. So there's nothing specifically righteous about having less or specifically unrighteous about having more. That's not what it's about. He is, he's found that what are they compelled by? They're compelled by their wealth. That's what, that's what is at the steering wheel. Their desire for more. Their worry about losing what they have. Their lives are built on a foundation that is made of, of money, that is made of possessions, that is made of the hunger for always more, always newer, always bigger, always better. That is how they measure themselves. Y'all, I hope you understand this by now. Idol- idolatry is a problem for every one of us. Every one of us struggles With some false god who competes for our affections. We now live in the most affluent nation that's ever existed that that would put Israel of 800 BC to shame. And you think we don't have a problem with wealth? You think we don't struggle with some of the same idolatry? I grew up around cattle. Let let me tell you something about cattle for those of you that don't know. Um, Cows are eating machines. That's what they do. I I used to ride in the back of my dad's pickup or my grandpa's pickup and and the cows would follow us because they saw that truck and they knew food is coming. You know, dad, all dad, my grandpa had this cattle call he would do. I won't do it for you because I've got this mic on. Uh, My dad wouldn't even bother. He'd just honk the horn. Or even if they just saw him getting in the truck, they'd come running and you could lead them anywhere. And I'm sitting in the back of the pickup and I'm watching them just galloping as best they can and their udders swaying back and forth. And, you know, it's just the most comical sight. And you realize, hey, you know, if we want to get the calves away and, and haul them off uh, to auction, all we have to do is drive right into the pen and the, and the mamas bring their babies on in and they eat and eat. And all of a sudden, nope, oh, where's my baby? Now, if that bothers you and you go home and eat a hamburger, you are a hypocrite, okay? <laughs> but my point is, it's not, it's not complicated. Cows have seven stomachs and one brain. They're built for a particular thing. You don't go to the circus to watch trained cows perform. You don't read articles in the paper about a hero cow rescuing its owner from danger. You don't, you don't build a, a, an army on warrior bovines. They are made for one thing and one thing only, and that is consumption. They're motivated by their stomach. And so what, what Amos is saying is, you live in a culture that's motivated by its stomach, by its appetites. You have to have more. And that's what's leading you to destruction. And how do you know if that's true of you? How do we know if Amos would say the same thing to you and me? And before you step and say, stop and say, hey, not me, brother, because I don't have that much money. I'm just a high school student, or I'm, I'm, I'm just a single mom, or I'm, I'm unemployed. You can live in a trailer park, and your God can still be money, Okay? So it's not about how much you have. It's about what's in your heart. So I want to give you three diagnostic questions so you can diagnose for yourself if money is your God, if you have a golden idol instead of the Lord on the throne of your heart. First question, do you seek for security and wealth? Jesus in Mark 10, 25 said, it's easier for for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And I've heard people try to explain that away. And oh, well, the eye of the needle was a gate in Jerusalem. Baloney. He's talking about a literal needle. You've seen the eye of a needle. You've seen how small that is. You may never have seen a camel in person. It's bigger than that, okay? When Jesus said these words, his disciples were astonished. They actually said, Lord, then who can be saved? Because in their theology, they thought that wealth was a sign that God approved of you. So if a person had wealth, that meant that they were living a righteous life. So if that guy can't be saved, how can I be saved? And Jesus' answer was, well, actually, nobody can be saved unless there's a miracle that happens. The way he said it was, what's impossible with man is possible with God. It takes a miracle for anybody to be saved. But the fact that most wealthy people won't be saved is because they don't want that miracle. Because to give your heart to Christ, to be saved, is not something you buy or you earn or you attain. It's something you're given. Jesus said, you have to be born again. It's, It's coming to the end of yourself and saying, my life as it is now is not working. Lord, take this life and replace it with something different. Take this life and let it become your throne. Depose me, depose everything else and put you on top. And when you've got money coming out your ears, when you're you're able to buy whatever you want, that doesn't sound appealing. Why would I put somebody else at the throne of my heart who might tell me to give some of that away? Who might lead me to go to missions instead of doing what I'm doing here? Who might lead me to become generous instead of hoarding what I have? Why would I want to give this away? That's why it's so much more likely for somebody to get saved in a jail cell than in a corner office. There's nothing wrong with success. But if you're praying for someone's salvation and they experience a a downturn, it's not the worst thing in the world for their soul. They're much more likely to be saved then. See, Jesus, Jesus came to die for sinners. And that's all of us. But you have to get to a point where you recognize yourself in those words. Amos prophesied against these Israelites because they had summer and winter houses. He's not saying that you're a sinner if you have more than one residence. But that was their security. I'm safe. Even if, even if there's three bad harvests in a row, I have built up enough reserve that I can survive anything. Oh yeah? What happens when a foreign army comes and takes it all? Because that's what's coming. What is your security in? And by the way, by the way, I know if, you're, uh, if you consider yourself on the poorer level of things, you might be tempted to uh, judge people who have more. That's, one of our, that's another form of money idolatry, by the way, is when you look at somebody else and you despise them because they have things you wish you could have. And so if, if he's driving this pickup truck that, that you wish you could have because it's, it's got a bigger engine and it's nicer and it's newer and a bigger bed, just understand something. He may be right with Jesus for all you know, Get the pickup truck out of your own eye first. Watch out for money idolatry. Let me ask you some follow-up questions on this idea of security and wealth. What are you more afraid of? Are you more afraid of losing everything you own or of missing out on God's purpose for your life? Which would you rather accomplish? To have enough money to buy anything you want or to have a closer walk with Jesus right now? Which do you spend more time on, achieving your financial security or spiritual maturity? And do you serve God in hopes he'll give you more stuff or do you use your stuff to serve God more? Wrestle with those questions. Take them seriously. Lieutenant George Dixon was uh, an officer in the Confederate Army during the Civil War. Fought in the Battle of Shiloh, one of the bloodiest battles in our nation's history. He was actually shot but wasn't wounded because the bullet hit a $20 gold coin that he was carrying in his pocket. That became his good luck charm. Lieutenant Dixon never parted from that gold coin. He would pull it out in stressful moments and rub it between his thumb and his forefinger. One day in the war, he was he was on a Confederate submarine called the USS Hunley, actually not USS, CSS Hunley, um, and it sunk. And it took it with took Lieutenant Dixon with him. He died. They raised that sub out of the river a few years ago, and one of the things they found inside was a dented $20 coin because money can't save you, but God can. What is your security in today? Second question, do you lack compassion for the poor? See, this is a subject that comes up over and over again in Amos But all throughout the scriptures, you find it. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Specifically, when he's talking to the cows of Bashan, he says, you oppress the poor, you crush the needy. Now, how is that possible? I mean, think about it. These are women and wealthy as they might have been they didn't have the cultural power back then they couldn't have run, they didn't run countries they didn't they weren't leaders in the city they didn't own businesses how could they have been the ones responsible for the plight of the poor and you have to do some thinking about it for a moment you have to realize some of the decisions we make indirectly hurt people and we don't even realize it you think you can imagine that that some of those decisions were like I need these garments. I need these new things. And so your husband pays his workers less than they need to live on to give you what you want. I need a new house. This old house isn't good enough. I want to keep it, but, but I need a new house. Okay, well, then I'll foreclose on this guy who owes me money. Even though I told him he had this many years to pay me, I'll foreclose now. I'll take everything he has. Well, the law of Moses specifically dealt with that situation. Land was supposed to be for families forever. I mean, if you lost your land, you're supposed to get it back after seven years. This was God's way of making sure there would never be any generational poverty in Israel. But these people were making families poor for generation after generation because they cared more about gaining than about giving. They didn't have compassion. They rode in their well-appointed chariots right past people every day who were scraping out a living and they didn't care. They didn't have eyes for that. Is, that. is that us? Is that what we do? Again, we live in the most affluent nation on earth. doesn't mean everybody has affluence. I, I just testify myself. I, I've always been this way since I, since I first bought a house. I always buy the nicest house I can afford, right? That's what we all do. What does that do though? As you're able to afford more, you get further and further and further away from those who have less. We isolate ourselves. We insulate ourselves against even seeing poverty. That means if we want to serve God, we have to recognize that and go out of our way to put ourselves into proximity with people who are struggling. They're not around us on a daily basis. We've seen to that. So let's go where they are because we need that, because they need to see that Jesus loves them. Think about churches and the decisions churches make. Churches are always picking up and moving and leaving the neighborhood they were founded in to to go someplace newer. What do they say? Well, this neighborhood has gone down. We need to go over here where the new houses are being built. And I'm not saying that's always wrong. God may lead a church to do that. He certainly hasn't led this church to do that, and I'm thankful for it, but he he may in the future. I don't know. but, But the thing is, If you're going to leave a neighborhood, leave something behind. Don't just leave an empty shell of a building. Leave a church there. Leave, you know, plant something there. Otherwise, you're saying to the people of that neighborhood, you don't matter to God, but the people over there in the $300,000 houses do. We need to recognize that, that we send a message as Christians that what God is about That's what they're going to judge. They're going to judge what God is about, what they based on what they see in us. Uh, Everybody knows that as born again Christians, we are for the unborn. We are against uh, changing standards when it comes to moral issues. We believe the scriptural standards for gender and sexuality. We fight against pornography and addiction and all these things that destroy lives and, and wreck our country. And that's all part of fighting the good faith. But you know what? Taking care of the poor. There's more about that in the scriptures than all those other things put together and you prove me wrong, read the Bible and prove me wrong. But the world doesn't see that. When we isolate ourselves from those who are struggling, when we blame them for their plight, God judges us for that. They need to see compassion in you and in me and in us collectively. Third question, has self-indulgence given you a sense of entitlement? Again, this is satire. We see it today. We see it when, when a stand-up comedian comes up and, and, uh, and, and parodies somebody's voice. I always love watching comedians who can, who can impersonate other folks, right? That's funny. This is what Amos is doing here as he parodies a wealthy woman lounging on her couch yelling to her husband, hey, bring me some more. Bring me another box of wine. Bring me another cocktail. I don't have a good enough buzz yet. I can still hear those four people outside. Self-indulgence can give us a sense of entitlement. It can make us think we deserve something. I want to read to you from the message. I don't usually use the message in preaching because it's not a translation of the scriptures. It's a paraphrase. But I think Eugene Peterson captures this pretty well. This is Amos 6, 4 through 7. Again, about the lifestyle of the Israelites. He says, woe to those who live in luxury and expect everyone else to serve them. Woe to those who live only for today, indifferent to the fate of others. Woe to the playboys, the playgirls, who think life is a party held just for them. Woe to those addicted to feeling good, life without pain, those obsessed with looking good, life without wrinkles. They could not care less about their country going to ruin. But here's what's really coming, a forced march into exile. They'll leave the country whining, a ragtag bunch of good-for-nothings think about that first sentence they live in luxury and expect everyone else to serve them we have a sense of entitlement when we go to a restaurant and we're abusive to the person who brings us our food oh it's not hot enough it's not what i ordered it didn't come out fast enough i admit some places don't have good service but how you treat that person says a whole lot about who you are it says everything about your character We think we're entitled to the good things of life. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying those good things if you have them. Because every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Everything you have that's good is a gift from Him. And you should enjoy it and be thankful, just like uh, any other father would enjoy watching his kids enjoy a gift. Just don't act like you deserve it, because you don't. Uh, speaking of fathers, I, I remember a preacher say, telling a story about when his dad would go off on business trips when he was a little boy, and his dad would always bring him some little toy, usually it's some giveaway thing he got at the hotel, or, or maybe he stopped at a toy store and bought something cheap. And one time the dad came home, and, and this, this boy and his little brother came running out. They were, they were there before dad even turned off the car. God got, dad got out and gave him a big hug, and they said, okay, dad, what'd you bring us? And he said, me. And they said, yeah, that's a good one, Dad, but, but really, what did you bring us? And he said, no, seriously, aren't you glad I'm home? Well, sure we are. Well, that's your gift. I came home. Aren't you glad you have me? That, I'm your gift. And the preacher said, now as an adult, I look back and I'm embarrassed to say, no, I wasn't glad. I was mad that Dad had dared to come home without bringing me a toy. And he said, the truth is, my father was an infinitely better gift than some little toy that I would forget in a week or I lose in a day. But I thought I deserved that. I'd gotten used to that. I expected that. And that's how we become as God's people when we say, this is the lifestyle that I need. Otherwise, I can't be happy. Lord, you, you promised that you would bless me. I, I want my life more abundant. And that means this car. And that means these clothes. And that means this house in this neighborhood and this lifestyle and this vacation we expect these things. That's the entitlement I'm talking about. When we hold God hostage, I refuse to be happy, Lord, till you give me what I expect, what my neighbor has, or even better. How do we overcome this? Because again, our culture is preaching this day after day after day. Do you realize how many advertisements you see, even if you don't watch TV? or even if you watch TV without commercials, you're going to see advertisements everywhere you go. This constant message that says you need more. You can't be happy. You need more. It starts with repentance. It starts with getting honest with yourself and praying a prayer that's really dangerous, but honest that says, Lord, I know that I'm tempted by material things. And maybe maybe the Holy Spirit sees in my heart and sees that, Honestly, these material things are too important to me. So Lord, let me just say right now, once and for all, if you take everything away and leave me only you, that's enough. Do you have the courage to pray that prayer? Do you have the courage to repent of your financial idolatry, your, your, your addiction to possessions? and then, And then you form these habits, these disciplines that that keep you free from the love of money. I'm going to name four of them. These aren't on the screen, so if you're a note taker, you're going to have to just write them down. But it's simplicity, thankfulness, generosity, and worship. Simplicity meaning you get rid of all the stuff you don't really need. And not just declutter your house, although that's a good idea. I mean, like, you don't need six different streaming services to watch television. You can probably make do with one. You don't need a membership to a gym that you never go to. You don't need several different Modes of transportation, you probably just need one, if that. Some of you could probably share. You, you call your life of everything that gets in the way. That's simplicity. And then thankfulness. You know, some years ago, I learned this habit from someone else that if you go to bed every night uh, with four things you're thankful for, just before you lay your head down, Lord, these are four things I want to say thank you for. It changes your life. You start to realize, I actually am rich. I don't need anything else. And if I need anything else, God will give it to me. And then generosity. Yeah, when you tithe your 10%, it makes a difference. It's made a difference for my wife and I to give 10% of our income to the Lord's work. Even in times when we had very little money, we always had enough and we never fought over money. So that's something. But then beyond that, that's just the baseline. It's, it's when you take opportunities to bless somebody else. It's, it's taking somebody else out to eat. It's... Sending somebody a gift card, it's, it's blessing them in some way. You may not have enough to, to do those kinds of things, but you can be generous in other ways. Generosity reminds you that none of it's really yours. It's just yours for a while to manage for the sake of God. It all belongs to Him. And then worship. When we worship God, when we connect with Him Sunday mornings, throughout the week, we're reminded that He's the true treasure, that He's the one. And again, if there's anything else we need, he'll provide. So what's it going to be? See, the cold hard truth is, this is not a fight you can win on your own. This is not something you can just discipline yourself to do. In the end, we'll always cave in and chase the idol of wealth, especially in a, in a culture like ours where, where you can get anything you want. It's not that hard. But God is the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns all things. And he gave it all up to redeem you. That's the gospel. That's the whole message of our faith. That He gave it all up to have you. So you can follow the other cattle and end up with a hook in your nose being led to the slaughter. Or you can follow the one who took the nails through his wrists and his ankles so that you could be redeemed. I don't think that's a hard decision. It just takes willingness It just takes a reminder every day. This is what my life is about. Not that. This is what my life matters. This is what my life means. Can you do that today? Whether you're 12, whether you're 100, can you make that decision today? Let's pray.